uh, during the day, I hit the streets with a, like with a sandwich board and try to get people out. And uh, <laughs> I was in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Denver, sure. And I says, the guy says, you're doing a show here. I said, yeah, where? Big, uh, the big auditorium. <laughs> he goes, how do you get to play the big auditorium? I said, I'll tell you, it's not just me. It's, uh, it's David Spade will be there and, uh, and uh, Nick Schwartzen too. <laughs> well, by God, the fella said, they're from the Sandler movies? They're, they're fantastic, I'd pay anything. I, it's just I don't have much money, I'm down on my luck. I says, I can get you tickets, I can get you tickets, sir. He goes, it'd be a dream of a lifetime. <laughs> I said, well, if you think that's a dream, wait till you hear this, Adam Sandler will be there himself. My God, the guy said, I'll bring me and my wife too, is that all right? I said, sure, I'll get you two tickets. He says, what time's the show? I said, it's at eight o'clock. I said, also, Rob Schneider's there. He said, eight o'clock's not good, that's when the news is on. <laughs> Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and that was Norm MacDonald on the Conan O'Brien show, doing what he does often on the Conan O'Brien show, tell a shaggy dog story. I gave Norm priority because he's a celebrity, and that's what you do with celebrities. But here's another that may actually better fit our purposes. It's a YouTube clip entitled A Real Shaggy Dog Story, and it is Sue Ward filming her father, Brian. I was on the train, I was going from Crewe to Edinburgh and uh, I was reading my newspaper and uh, the train at Crewe, a gentleman gets in with a dirty big suitcase and uh, he puts it on the seat and I'm reading the newspaper and I think, God, that, he'll have to put that up on the rack or something. So he does, he puts it up on the rack and then the train pulls out, and I'm still reading the newspaper, I've got the obituary, I can't see anybody. Anyway, the, uh, the guy pulls this dirty big cake suitcase and puts it onto the, and gets a dirty big bunch of keys out, and unders the suitcase, opens the lid, and then pulls one of these tins out, which turns to be tomato soup. He undoes the tin, and produces a plate and puts it on there. By this time I put the newspaper down. And to cut a long story short, between there and the next <coughs> stop, this guy is uh, puncturing all these tins, emptying the contents onto the plate, then pulling the strap on the train carriage, throwing it out, like that, and uh, I think, that's all right, he must be a bit cracked this way. Anyway, then he proceeds with a, yeah, corkscrew. And he gets a dirty big lump of string and pushes it through all these tins until he's got a load of tins and uh, starts swinging it around his head. I think I'd better get out of this carriage. So uh, I turned to him and I said, uh, I said, what's that? He said, that's a tiger catcher. I said, well, there aren't any tigers in Edinburgh. And he pulls the strap up, throws it out, and he said, well, that won't be any good then, will it? <laughs> so what is a shaggy dog story? 
TVTropes.org says a shaggy dog story is a plot with a high level of buildup and complicating action, only to be resolved with an anticlimax or ironic reversal, usually one that makes the entire story meaningless. The term comes from a type of joke that worked the same way. A basic premise, a long amount of buildup, and a deliberately underwhelming punchline. The best and most famous of these jokes is the Cheerio joke where there is a potentially hours-long story ending in the main character going to get some punch and finding that there is no punch line. The classic example is a man who finds a shaggy dog similar to one in a lost dog poster from a rich family and bankrupts himself trying to return it to them in England for reward money. When he finally makes it there, he's told that the dog wasn't that shaggy before the door slammed in his face. For television, these stories tend to be found in two varieties— Serious and comedic. Serious shaggy dog stories generally put the protagonist on a quest or goal only to undermine the purpose at the last minute. In our story, The Hidden Thing, it's not the goal that is undermined. The goal is achieved. It's the process that is undermined. And while the ending is our big shaggy dog conclusion, the process is actually undermined all along the way, consistently frustrating and disappointing us. The hidden thing of the title, by the way, is not a tangible thing at all. Rather, it's a memory. Here's Hitch. He is pulling objects out of a big steamer trunk and setting them on a table. He pulls out a large panda teddy bear, then a hot water bottle. Now, that's not it. I'm trying to locate a lost article. The only difficulty is... I can't remember what I lost. He reaches in again and pulls out a noose. No, this isn't it. I don't know why I keep it. I don't think it's any good anymore. It's been used. And this time, after reaching in, he pulls out a gun. This is for the man who has everything. It's to enable you to take some of it away from him. By the way, this may take all evening, so while I'm looking here, why don't you look over there? So here's The Hidden Thing. First broadcast on May 20th, 1956. Starring Biff McGuire and Robert H. Harris. Teleplay by James Cavanaugh. Based on a story by A.J. Russell. And directed by Robert Stevens. We get a nice Robert Stevens opening here. We fade to black after the opening credits. And instead of fading back up again, that blackness becomes illuminated by two car headlights facing the camera with the sound of the car approaching. As it gets nearer, we can make out the car and the road. The camera follows it until it starts to pass the location of the camera. Then the camera stops on a car that is parked across the street. Besides being a nice visual opening, this shot gives us a sense of how fast cars are coming on this road. There appear to be two people inside that car across the street, and we soon cut to a nice close-up of them. It's a man and a woman, and they are kissing until they stop to chat and share a cigarette. The man is Dana Edwards, played by our lead, Biff McGuire, and the woman is Laura, She doesn't get a last name, played by Judith Ames. 
and I'm going to play their entire conversation here, since by the time we get to the end of this episode, we're going to hear it twice. Hello. Hi. What are you thinking about? I, I wasn't thinking about anything, really. I, I was just wondering how you could be be real and, and still be so beautiful. Only to you, darling. No. To everyone. <laughs> and just prejudice. No one else ever thought I was as beautiful as you do. Yeah. What were they using for eyes? <laughs> oh, why do we have to wait two more days? Why can't we be married tonight? Oh, darling, that, that's not too long to wait. It's forever. Oh, be in two more days and then... and forever and forever. You know, sometimes when I... I'm not with you. I, I close my eyes and I I can't remember what you look like. I wonder why that is. I don't know. I think it's because I'm afraid that, afraid I'm going to lose you. I couldn't live if I did. Oh, darling, you'll never lose me. Why shouldn't I? What did I ever do to get you as a reward? Probably something terrible. Probably I'm a punishment, not a reward. Yeah, you're some punishment. We shouldn't be parked here. Oh, why not? We stopped to get something to eat, remember? Oh, that's not very romantic. <laughs> I can't help but I'm the healthy type. All right, outdoor girl. Let's go get a hamburger. This all feels a bit silly and over the top, except that people in love do say such things to each other. Dana's comments, of course, about losing her, and Laura's promise that he won't, is there to pound in the tragedy of it all when he does lose her just a few minutes later. But what does this exchange mean? What did I ever do to get you as a reward? Probably something terrible. Probably I'm a punishment, not a reward. Some punishment. Is this a foreshadowing of Dana's torment and guilt? Or is this emotion and detail that leads nowhere? Is this shaggy dog useless information? But wait a minute, did I say guilt? Why should Dana feel guilty? Here's why. Well, aren't you going to move the car? Move it? Where? Well, well, there's a parking space over there by the hamburger stand. The car's all right here. Of course, if you're too lazy just to walk across the street. All right. I see how easy I am to get along with. Come on, let's go. So it's Dana's idea to run across a busy street rather than park in a space that's available right by the hamburger stand. And when Laura calls him on it, he calls her lazy. And as if to emphasize what a bad idea this is, a car drives by right before they cross, again, going too fast. But then they make it across safely, so maybe we're worrying about nothing. Until then... Oh, darn it, I left my bag in the car. Oh, it's, it's safe there. Oh, I know, but I need my compact. Oh, I like you better shiny. Now who's being lazy? All right, you go ahead and order. I want a double hamburger rare in a hurry. No, soul, you're completely dominated by stomach. Oh. 
They stand in the open doorway of the hamburger joint. There are two people sitting at the counter inside and a counterman behind. We can see signs that say soda 10 cents, open all night. But these are shaggy dog details. Just like Laura saying she wants her bag because her compact is in it. Just like Laura telling Dana what kind of hamburger she wants. None of this ultimately matters because the point is Laura is going back across that road again. Just when we thought that we'd worried about her over nothing, she raises our fears again. And this time, they're justified. So Laura leaves the frame as we watch Dana walk into the hamburger joint. Then the shot cuts over not to Laura, but to a car coming down the road. So we are warned of it before she is. When we cut to Laura, she's not even looking at that car. But when she looks up and sees it and screams... We get the most powerful shot in this entire episode. Laura illuminated by the headlights, frozen in place, with a look of terror on her face. Now, if this image looks familiar, it could be because you've seen the 1955 film Kiss Me Deadly, which opens with Cloris Leachman, barefoot and wearing nothing but a trench coat, stepping out into the middle of the road to force a car to stop. We get the same image of a woman illuminated by headlights. Only in Cloris's case, the driver, Mike Hammer, played by Ralph Meeker, stops. Jack Seabrook has a nice little feature at barebonesez.blogspot.com called Hammer Meets Hitchcock, in which he compares the opening of Kiss Me Deadly to the opening of this episode, complete with photos comparing Cloris Leachman and Judith Ames within their respective headlights. Jack points out that Kiss Me Deadly was released in May of 1955, and was, as he puts it, in the public consciousness as the first episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents were being filmed. He further notes that the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Revenge, starred Ralph Meeker, and that the teleplay had an uncredited assist from A.I. Bezerides, who was the screenwriter of Kiss Me Deadly. Jack also notes that Cloris Leachman and Percy Helton, who both appear in Kiss Me Deadly, also appear in the second episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Premonition. So Kiss Me Deadly may have an influence on the initial episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and it's possible that Robert Stevens was recalling the scene with Cloris Leachman when he filmed the scene with Judith Ames. Dana rushes out of the hamburger joint when he hears Laura scream right into an extreme close-up of his face as the car drives off a hit-and-run driver. We have the luxury of pausing the screen, so we can see that the license number is KTY478 on a generic license plate with nothing else on it. But of course, the viewers of 1956 and Dana cannot do this. We go back to that extreme close-up of Dana as he screams Laura's name. Laura! And then he runs out of the shot 
that stays behind just briefly so that we see the two extras who have been sitting at the counter get up and walk towards the door to see what's going on. The camera then switches to a low shot of Dana's legs that will take us to a shot of Laura lying in the middle of the road. She's face down and he turns her around, lifts her up and holds her tightly, but there's nothing he can do. The love of his life, the woman he was going to marry in two days, is dead. We're going to see Laura again because we're going to see all of this again. But this seems like a good place to look at Judith Ames. And Judith is a good one to start with because of all the actors, not counting the uncredited extras, Judith is the only one whom we have not seen before. Judith Ames was born Rachel K. Folger. She is the daughter of the actors Byron Folger and Dorothy Adams. Byron appeared in The Great McGinty, Sullivan's Travels, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, and other Preston Sturgis films, as well as in the Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance. I got that kind of face. Dorothy appeared in dozens of films, including Nanachka, One Foot in Heaven, Since You Went Away, and The Best Years of Our Lives, as well as the Twilight Zone episode, Dust. No more today, John. No more. Judith attended UCLA, where her mother was a professor in the drama department, and it wasn't long after that that she was signed by Paramount Pictures with a three-year contract. It was apparently Paramount who changed her name to Judith Ames. Her first feature film was the George Powell production of When Worlds Collide. You know... in which she gets sixth billing in the credits, plays a character who gets both a first and last name, Julie Cummings, and has a decent amount of screen time, but only says two words in the entire film. If you didn't catch that, that was, we're here. By the way, the little boy, Mike, in that film was played by Rudy Lee, whom we talked about in our previous episode. And Dr. Tony Drake was played by Peter Hansen, who later spent 40 years playing Lee Baldwin on General Hospital and on Port Charles. Why should we care? Because Judith Ames, who by this time was using the stage name Rachel Ames, spent more than 40 years on General Hospital and Port Charles herself, playing Audrey Hardy, R.N., the longest-running role in ABC television history. She was nominated three times as Best Actress in the Daytime Emmys, without winning, but she did eventually win a Lifetime Achievement Award. Of her early days on General Hospital, Rachel said, I seriously doubted that they would pick up my option because my character had a disease. She had lymphoma, and she was supposed to die very soon. But they apparently liked me, so they kept me on, and gradually they forgot about the lymphoma. This is part of a timeline of Rachel's character Audrey on General Hospital in the 1960s from the website general-hospital.fandom.com. 
Audrey March arrived in Port Charles in 1964 to visit her sister Lucille. Audrey was a registered nurse, but had been working as an airline stewardess, which she thought was a more glamorous life. She soon saw Dr. Steve Hardy and decided to stay in town to become a private nurse. She and Steve struck up a romance and became engaged, but when Audrey's client, Randy Washburn, proposed to her, she broke things off with Steve and accepted Randy's proposal. Audrey was then diagnosed with lymphoma, and Randy left her high and dry. Audrey turned back to Steve, and the two married in 1965, after she fully recovered from her illness. After several years of marriage, Audrey was worried when she failed to conceive a child. Thinking Steve might be sterile, she had herself artificially inseminated without Steve's knowledge. Audrey became pregnant, and Steve was upset at first, but then started to look forward to having a child with Audrey. Then Audrey was in a car accident and suffered a miscarriage. Audrey was devastated at losing the baby and left Steve. Shortly after their divorce was finalized, Audrey married Tom Baldwin in an effort to show Steve she was over him. Audrey couldn't bring herself to consummate her marriage to Tom. Tom grew frustrated and raped Audrey, which resulted in her becoming pregnant. When Audrey found out she was pregnant, she filed for divorce and left town. She wanted to keep her child safe from his violent father. And that was just the 1960s. Clips of General Hospital are hard to come by, but I did find this badly recorded one on YouTube from 1975, where Audrey apparently has become hard up for money. See, buy used fur coats. Yeah, sure. We buy used anything. Ah. Uh. Well, I'd like to show you one I, I have here. It's not a full-length coat. It's, it's just a jacket. How old is it? Well, it's not very old, actually. It's less than two years old. What kind of fur? Oh, uh, mink. Mink. <laughs> Good. A lot of people won't be complaining. <laughs> it's not an endangered species. got to think of all the angles. Mm. I hate to part with it, really. It's so beautiful. Uh, would you like for me to put it on? No, I can see. But, well, I'm, I'm sure it's in, in very good condition. I, I've taken such good care of it. Hundred and fifty dollars. Hundred and fifty dollars? That's all I can get for it. Rachel appeared in other television series: Highway Patrol, Perry Mason, The Andy Griffith Show, The Fugitive, the thriller episode Mark of the Hand, six episodes of science fiction theater, to name just a few. But after 1970, it appears that it was all General Hospital and Port Charles. This is her only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And Rachel Ames is, at the time of this recording, 91 years old. So, as Dana holds Laura, we get a slow fade to black. And it stays black for a few seconds before we fade up again. And now we're inside the hamburger joint. Dana is at one of the tables, and with him is Lieutenant Shea from the police. I hate to have to keep questioning you at a time like this, but you understand it's necessary. I, I, I can't tell you anything. If you can, no one can. You were the only one there, except the man who killed her. So, did you recognize Lieutenant Shea's voice? Well, you probably wouldn't, because the last time we saw him, he didn't have any lines. Lieutenant Shea is played by Theodore Newton. This is his second of six Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour appearances. His first appearance was as the silent murderer in The Babysitter, episode 32. His next appearance is in The Indestructible Mr. Weems. 
episode 37 of season 2, where he'll play a doctor, as he'll do for most of the rest of his appearances. Dana is played by Biff McGuire, of course. This is his second of four appearances. His previous appearance was just three episodes ago in The Gentleman from America. But I'm sorry to have to report that Biff McGuire has since died, just about two weeks after I released the podcast of that episode. He was 94 years old. Now, Lieutenant Shea's comment to Dana that... You were the only one there. ...is not entirely true. There were the two people sitting at the counter, and there was the hamburger guy working the counter. Now, the two people are in the background in this scene. They're being interviewed by a uniformed policeman. The counter guy is nowhere to be found. In fact, he's barely seen in the episode at all. And yet, he's the one amongst these four who actually gets a credit. He's Richard Collier... And this is the second of two appearances for him. His last was as the tie salesman in the case of Mr. Pelham, episode number 10. And we talked about him back then. Now back to the action where Lieutenant Shea is trying to get some information. Well, if you could just try to remember everything you saw. I didn't see anything. You said before you saw the license plate. Well, I'm not sure anymore. Do you think I was worried about remembering some license plate when Laura was lying there? This is a nice Robert Stevens moment. And having mentioned Robert, let me add that this is his 14th of 44 Alfred Hitchcock Presents and five Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. After Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, the Older Sister, Shopping for Death, Place of Shadows, The Perfect Murder, Portrait of Jocelyn, Never Again, The Gentleman from America, and The Babysitter. His next is episode 39, Momentum. Now, as I was saying, this is a nice Robert Stevens moment. Frustrated, Dana gets up from the table, knocking a chair over by the sound of it, and goes over to the counter where he leans down and puts his hands on the seat of one of the bar stools. As Shea questions him, again, frustrated, he spins the bar stool. The camera pans down, so we get a close-up of that bar stool spinning before it moves back up again to show Lieutenant Shea looking at Dana. And though he is somewhat stoic, you can still see the frustration on his face. And then the camera follows Lieutenant Shea over to Dana, who has moved away. Sorry, son. I know how rough it is on you. Just one or two more questions and I'll call it a night. Dana turns away, and that's where the shot ends. We get a quick cut to Dana now leaning down on his elbows on the counter, his hands covering his face. Shea pursues him and pursues his line of questioning. You say you don't remember the color of the car. The make? Look at me, son. Now think a minute before you answer this. The color of the license plate. I mentioned before that the process is undermined all along the way. That's true not only for the process that will show up later on in the plot, but for the staging and the camera shots at times as well. In this case, after Shay confronts Dana with the color of the license plate, we get a close-up of Dana's face 
as a light bulb seems to go off. We think at that moment he's going to say, ah, the color of the license plate. Now that you mention it, all indications are that is what's going to happen next. But then it doesn't. No. Nothing. Shay decides to call it a night, and he sends Dana home. But as Dana leaves the hamburger joint, the camera stays with Shay as he sits down at the counter and drinks his coffee. Why stay with Shay? Is he about to think of something? Is he going to crack the case? No. Nothing. And so we dissolve from the hamburger stand to Dana's home, where his mother is answering the telephone. Hello? She is played by Catherine Warren, whom we last saw back in episode 23, Back for Christmas. This is her second of three appearances, and her next and last is in Silent Witness, episode 5 of season 3. She answers the phone very politely, but then her shoulders slump, and we know, before she says anything, that this is someone who has called before, and she's tired of hearing from him. Hello? Yes, this is Miss Edwards. I'm sorry, I told you before, my son doesn't wish to speak to anyone. Dana is upstairs, lying on his bed, humming. We get a point-of-view shot of the light fixture on his ceiling. It's clearly what he's been looking at for quite some time. And he keeps looking at it, even when his mother enters the room, pulls the covers up over him, and sits by the side of the bed. It isn't until she mentions how she felt when his father died that he turns and looks at her. I've left you alone for a whole week. It isn't getting any better. How can it get any better? That's right. And you've got to learn to live with it, dear. The world doesn't stop because someone dies, Dana. My world stopped. No, dear. And lying here day after day brooding about whoever was driving He's a murderer. He's a murderer. Don't you suppose he knows that? Can't you imagine wherever he is what he must be feeling? It's not enough. Dana, I don't know how to say this to you exactly. But you're not special, dear. You're no different from anyone else. And unhappiness and tragedy come to all of us sometime. Came to me when your father died. Uh, I loved her so much. I know. I know. Why did this have to happen to us? That doorbell ringing prevents his mother from answering that question, but I'll be blunt and answer it for her. Maybe because you wouldn't take the open parking space at the hamburger joint. But you know, later on, that turns out to be part of the point. Dana's mother gets up and leaves the room to answer the door. Dana looks at her until she exits. Then he looks back at that light fixture again. We get another point of view shot of that light fixture, and he starts his humming. Then, with the camera still on Dana, we get a voice from beyond. The door wasn't locked, and when no one answered, I just came in. Time for another process to be undermined. 
The camera switches from Dana to his mother standing on the stairs talking to a man we do not see. We cut back to Dana up in his room, listening in, and when the man mentions the accident, Dana gets up out of the bed and heads out of the room. The camera cuts back down to his mother again. Dana runs down the stairs to join his mother. We still don't see the man that they're talking to. And it isn't until the man says, all I know is what I read in the newspapers, and Dana turns away, that the camera finally moves over to show him. Who are you? My name is John Hurley. You're, you're the man who's been telephoning. That's correct. I must talk to your son about the accident. The accident? Do you know anything about it? Who was driving the car? I've got to talk to your son. Could you tell me? He doesn't want to see anyone. I'm sorry, your son. The accident? What, what do you know about the accident? All I know is what I read in the newspapers. So why aren't we seeing this man? What's the big secret? It isn't until that camera pans over that we discover there is no secret. It's Robert H. Harris with a mustache, a bow tie, wire rim glasses, and a burning cigarette in his right hand that he never smokes. So again, the camera work leads us to believe that there is going to be something significant here in the appearance of the visitor when there's nothing significant here at all. We've seen Robert H. Harris twice before in episode 18, Shopping for Death, and episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. He is in eight total Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. And his next is Toby, episode six of season two. So now that we finally see him, he finally says something that attracts Dana's attention. I lost my son in the same way, Mr. Edwards. I know what you must be feeling. Hurley asks to speak to Dana in private, so his mother goes off to make coffee and they move into another room. Dana offers him a seat. Hurley doesn't sit down. What follows is a scene where they take turns dominating or they take turns retreating. Dana is taller than Hurley, so when they're both standing, he has the dominant spot. But then Dana sits and Hurley leans over him. Later, Hurley himself sits. He is behind Dana but his chair places him higher in the shot than Dana, so he's still in control. Dana flees the shot. We stay with Hurley. He follows Dana. They're both standing where Dana should have dominance, but Dana flees again, leaving the shot. And Dana has now sat down on a couch. Hurley stands over him. By the time Hurley sits down, they've achieved an equilibrium. This is where they make their agreement. Let's listen to some of that scene. We have something in common. We're both looking for a murderer. Well, not the same one, of course, but that's not important. That's an interesting comment. If we weren't thinking about it before, that comment has us thinking about it now. Maybe they are looking for the same murderer. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about the person who killed your fiancé. Now, I can help you find him. Are you a detective? No. No. I'm not anything, really. I used to teach a long time ago. Now I do other things. And saying that, this is where he finally sits down and he puts out that cigarette that he hasn't been smoking. So what does this all mean? This is mysterious. He used to teach. Now he's not anything. Now he does other things. This is the moment where they're both sitting, Dana in the foreground, Hurley in the background, but Hurley's seat is higher. So he's still controlling the conversation. 
How much do you remember about the accident, Mr. Edwards? Nothing. Well, that's not possible. You saw it. And everything we see is recorded in the mind, whether we're conscious that it's there or not. What good does that do if I can't remember it? Oh, but you can remember it. You saw the license plate, didn't you? I'm not sure. This is where Dana retreats, getting up and leaving the frame, with Hurley following him. It said in the paper you saw it, but couldn't remember it. I'm not sure. Dana retreats again, this time ending up on the couch. I've been sitting around here all week trying to remember it, and I... I can't. Let me help you. Hurley stands over Dana as he says this. And when Dana asks him how he can help him, that's when he sits down and joins him on equal footing. How? Have you ever heard of Total Recall? Oh, I have. It's that film with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But how real does it seem? As real as any memory in your head. Well, that's just the problem. The memories, or the lack of memories, in Dana's head. I can make you remember anything that ever happened to you. Now, if you work with me, we'll be able to do it. Do what? Bring back the past, day by day. Now, we'll start with unimportant days, but eventually we'll get to the day of the accident. You'll relive it, moment by moment, right up to the second you saw the license plate. And then you'll remember it. And when you do, we'll catch a murderer. Why should my remembering it be so important to you? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Up until this point, Hurley has had his arm around Dana, and he's leaned in very close. But when Dana asks this question, he backs off. Does it matter what my reasons are? If I can do this for you, what difference does it make? I'm not sure, but it can't be just because your son was killed in the same way. And with this comment, Hurley gets up and actually turns his back to the camera. What if it isn't? What if I have other motives? What could those other motives be? Well, just remember, the process is undermined all along the way, and this is a shaggy dog story. Hurley turns around and faces Dana again. You want to find the man who killed your fiancé? I can make that possible. Will you do it? And now Dana takes control of the camera. We get a shot of him while Hurley is still speaking. And then he stands and takes a few steps over so that Hurley is now in the frame as well. But Dana is in the foreground and he's taller as he makes his decision. Yes, I'll do it. And then the camera pans over to show Dana his face filling the screen. I want to find him no matter who he is. And that line takes us to the commercial break. So we have the whole time with the commercial to think about that. No matter who he is, could he possibly be Hurley? Well, I think that's what we're supposed to think. When we return... Time has clearly passed, although Hurley is wearing that same suit and polka-dotted tie that he wears throughout the episode. But they're now up in Dana's room, both sitting down, both looking very much at home. And there's a blackboard up there. What's written on it is mostly obscured, once again frustrating us in the process. But if you pause at the appropriate times, you can see that it says on one side, visual, car, tree, 
And on the other side, sonic radio birds. So Hurley is trying to immerse Dana in those two senses to bring back the memory. But as we enter this scene, Dana isn't focused on the blackboard or on Hurley. He is staring at a snow globe that he has in his hands. And as Hurley talks, the camera pulls in to give us a close-up of that snow globe. Inside of it is a white rabbit in a waistcoat. So now we're heading down a rabbit hole into Wonderland. Here's the conversation that's going on at the same time. You heard your mother's voice calling. What has that got to do with the accident? I told you before, we've got to go back before we can go forward. We've been going back and back. Well, when are we going to get to the day of the accident? Soon, Dana. Soon. Why, why do you keep avoiding the day of the accident? You aren't ready. You sure it's that? Or isn't this something you've worked out not to help me remember, but to make it impossible for me to? Do you believe that? I don't know what I believe. I don't know what I believe either, but it sure seems like this conversation is intended to get me to think that Hurley was the hit-and-run driver. After all, why else would he avoid the day of the accident? Why else would he be trying to make sure that Dana doesn't remember something? But is that what he's doing, or is that just what Dana thinks he might be doing? The trouble is, as Dana puts it, I don't know any more about you now than I did the day you walked in here. And that's true for us as well. At this point in the conversation, Dana gets up and starts to leave. He has opened the door, and he's on his way out until Hurley stops him in his tracks with, Can you do it without me? And clearly he can't. At this point, he has let Hurley so thoroughly into his life that he is leaving his own room with Hurley still in there, as if it's Hurley's room. Hurley tells Dana to go lie on the bed, and we get another one of those great Robert Stevens shots, this time of the mirror over the bureau. To the left on the bureau is a framed picture of Laura. And in the mirror, we see Dana stretched out on the bed, looking towards Hurley and us. So we're not just in Wonderland, we're through the looking glass. So Hurley tells Dana that it's time to go back to the day before the accident. But Dana rebels, and in doing so, forces the camera to leave the mirror and to focus just on him. No, I won't do it. I won't go back to that day. So Hurley leans in and joins Dana in the close-up in the same way that he did on the couch in our previous scene. Why? What's the matter? I have to live it all over again. Yes, but then it won't be long before we get to the day of the accident. Well, that's, that's why I stopped. I just realized if I want to know that number, I'm going to have to watch Laura die again. Yes, and so are we. The lights fade and come up again, and again we've got a close-up of that snow globe, which is again in Dana's hands. The camera pulls back to show Hurley entering the room. Dana is now wearing a tie. Hurley is wearing the same thing he always wears. Dana is changing. Hurley is not. He's still a cipher. The last time that door opened, Dana tried to leave. This time, it's Dana's room again, and he tries to establish that by telling Hurley he doesn't want to go on anymore. Just as Dana says that, his mother comes in, she has, I think, throughout represented reason, reasonableness, or even forgiveness, as opposed to Hurley's push for the truth that translates with Dana into revenge. And we get two interesting moments of close-ups of the three of them. In the first, as Dana and Hurley talk, Dana's mom is in between them, looking back and forth, following the conversation, but saying nothing. 
I tell you, I don't want to go on with it anymore. Well, that's because there's something blocking your memory, something it hurts you to remember, some guilt. Guilt? Yes, and you've got to face up to it, then it won't be a block any longer. If that's all it is, I, I don't need you. I don't need to force it. I'll, I'll remember, remember it eventually without you. But I want to be here when you do. Yeah, but why? Because I deserve to be. You couldn't have done it without me. That's a strange thing to say. Why does Hurley feel the need to be there at the moment of success? Is it because he was already involved in some way in the accident? On the other hand, his comment about guilt turns out to be exactly right. So maybe he's a disgraced psychiatrist looking to reclaim his reputation? Whatever is going on, Dana retreats, Hurley follows him, and we again get that two-shot. But then Dana's mother again steps in between the two of them. And this time she says something. Dana, listen. Listen, Dana. We must go on. You want to find the person who killed Laura, don't you? Don't listen to him, Dana. There's something wrong with him. I don't want him, Mother, but he's right. I have to find him. Then you'll go on? I'll try. Good. So Dana's mother is his conscience, warning him that there's something wrong with Hurley. And Dana knows it, but he can't abandon his overriding goal. So he sides with Hurley. And once he does that, Hurley looks at Dana's mother as if to say, I've won. And Dana's mother leaves the room. The camera repositions itself in front of Dana, and he stands and walks toward it, walks into it, in a very similar scene to the one he had at the end of The Gentleman from America. He removes his tie as he does this, and then he moves aside, revealing Hurley behind, who lights a cigarette, which he again never smokes, and he joins Dana at the bed. It is time to try to remember the day of the accident. All right, Dana. We'll go back slowly. Now relax. Try to relax. Now, start with sonic recall if you can. It's easier. There was some music. I, I don't remember the name of it, though. It doesn't matter. Just go back and listen to it. Listen to the music. So now we know the reason for the humming. He's been recalling that music that was playing on the radio. Not that his humming sounds like that music on the radio. But hey, whatever works. Then I... I kissed her and I... I just sat there for a while looking at her. She said, hello. I said, hi. Yes, that's what happened, all right. And in case you've forgotten, we're going to watch the whole thing again. The same scenes, the same shots, exactly from the first part of the episode. Don't worry, I'm not going to put you through all of that again. But there are a couple of interruptions along the way. First of all, Dana stops and says he can't remember. But then he does remember. Then I said to her, darling, darling, I I love you so much, but... Sometimes when I close my eyes, I I can't remember what you looked like. The second time, there's a knock on the door. It's Dana's mother coming in to tell him that Lieutenant Shea is here, because apparently Dana sent for him. 
I got a message, Mr. Edwards. You'd remembered the license plate. What is this all about? I left you that message, Inspector. You know, one day, Hurley, you're going to turn up once too often. Please, Mr. Shea, give us a few minutes. Mr. Shea, just a few more minutes, please. All right, I'll give you five minutes. See you downstairs, Hurley. I am also wondering what this is all about. Was Hurley so convinced that they were going to have a session where Dana would remember the license plate that he has called Lieutenant Shea ahead of time to tell him to come over? Apparently so. And Shea's response, you're going to turn up once too often, is a little unsettling. So again, still, what is going on here? In any event, Shea goes downstairs, Hurley joins Dana again, and Dana goes back to his remembering. And then she said, aren't you going to move the car? Move it? Where? And yes, we go back into what we saw at the beginning of the episode, moment by moment, line by line, all the way until the time that Laura is frozen in the headlights, which all seems pretty unnecessary until you consider that we're dealing with a shaggy dog story, part of which, as we saw in our definition, is a high level of buildup and complicating action, often repeating the same actions over and over and over again. This time, when Laura screams, Dana sits up in bed, remembering it. He rushes to the blackboard, erases part of what's on there, and writes in big letters, KTY478. Hurley calls for Shay to join them, and the camera moves in on a close-up of that license number written on the blackboard. This is what we've been looking for for the entire episode, and we've got it. Success. There's the license number, Mr. Shay. I, I finally remembered... Mr. Hurley was right about my mental block. I, I was feeling guilty because I didn't go back to the car to get Laura's compact. Well, it seems to me that the real guilt should arise from not taking the parking space across the street. But okay. I, I was blaming myself for her death. I, I didn't want to remember, but Mr. Hurley was right. He, he, he made me remember. Will someone please tell me what he's got to do with it? Dana puts his arm around Hurley. They're now about as close as they can be. And Dana's right. Hurley was right. He had guilt, and his method worked. The process worked. And now it's time for the punchline. Is Hurley a disgraced psychiatrist? Does that license plate number belong to his car? Or is it the same guy who killed Hurley's son? Or is all of this in Dana's mind, and Laura never even existed? Well, don't forget that in a shaggy dog story... The punchline usually makes the whole story meaningless. Or to refer again to the Cheerio story, the main character of the story goes to get some punch and finds that there is no punchline. But he was determined to help me find Laura's killer because, well, because of his son. His son? Well, yes, the, the one who was killed by the hit-and-run driver. I don't know what you're talking about. He hasn't got any son. He's even married. He's a nut, that's all. He keeps turning up to bother us all the time. He's just a nut. And as we get that comedy music, Hurley looks up at Dana with this knowing expression, as if to say, you should have known it all along. I didn't mention Biff McGuire's next appearance before because I didn't want to step on the punchline, such as it is. But now that we've gotten to the, he's just a nut, it's time to look ahead and say that Biff is next in Crackpot, episode 15 of season two where he encounters another nut played by an actor sometimes mistaken for Robert H. Harris, Robert M. Hart. And, now that we've gotten to the punchline, such as it is, 
Let's take a look at our two writers. The teleplay was written by James Cavanaugh, later known as James P. Cavanaugh. Jack Seabrook has a nice bio of James Cavanaugh in his review of The Hidden Thing at barebonesez.blogspot.com. Jack tells us that James debuted on television as one of three writers for the 1951 crime drama The Family Secret. The other two writers were Francis Cockrell and Andrew Solt, both of whom we've seen before. Jack tells us that James spent most of the 50s and 60s writing for TV, including 15 episodes of Suspense and an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's The Birds for the series Danger, nearly 10 years before the Hitchcock film. He also wrote nine episodes of Climax, and he adapted Cornell Warwich's Rendezvous in Black for Playhouse 90. Jack also tells us, On June 8, 1959, at the recommendation of Joan Harrison, Hitchcock hired Cavanaugh to adapt Robert Bloch's novel Psycho for the screen. Cavanaugh flew from Paris to Hollywood on June 10th and began work on the screenplay, which still survives. Hitchcock was not happy with the script, however, and fired Cavanaugh on July 27th, but the author continued to write for the director's television show. He, in fact, wrote 15 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents altogether. This is his first. His next is The Creeper, episode 38. He also won an Emmy Award for his teleplay for Fog Closing In, which is episode 2 of season 2, and he was nominated for an Edgar Award for Murder at the Gallop, which is one of the Margaret Rutherford Miss Marple films of the early 60s. Jack tells us that in 1960, he became the associate producer and story editor for the first eight episodes of Thriller, and he also wrote the script for the first episode to air, The Twisted Image. He also wrote the Suspicion episode, The Other Side of the Curtain, and the Tales of Tomorrow episode, Lazarus Walks. And unfortunately, he died very young, at the age of 49, in 1971. Jack Seabrook also gives us a nice rundown on the man who is responsible for the story, A.J. Russell, also known as Andrew Russell. Jack says that Russell, like Cavanaugh, was a very successful writer for television beginning in 1950. He wrote 11 episodes of Lights Out and adapted Frederick Brown's story, Crisis 1999, for the series Tales of Tomorrow. He began writing for The Jackie Gleason Show in 1952 and was one of the writing staff responsible for the classic 39-episode season of The Honeymooners. He went on to write for The Phil Silver Show, Sergeant Bilko, and shared an Emmy with the rest of the show's writing staff in 1958. He continued writing for television into the 1980s. He, in fact, had two primetime Emmy nominations for The Phil Silver Show, only winning once and he was nominated for a Best Writing of a Single Musical or Variety Program, which was Art Carney Meets Peter and the Wolf. He also wrote for The Defenders, Profiles in Courage, The Bold Ones, Dynasty, and he earned three Daytime Emmy nominations as a story consultant for, yes, General Hospital. Now, nine writers won Emmys for that Sergeant Bilko, Phil Silver's television episode. But I think that was just the whole writing staff. As far as I can tell, the episode that won was only written by two of the writers, Sidney Zelinka and A.J. Russell. And the reason I think it's just the two of them that wrote it are these lines from Sidney Zelinka's obituary. 
1957, Mr. Zelenka shared an Emmy Award for comedy writing with A.J. Russell for an episode from the television program Sergeant Bilko. Two years later, the pair received an award from the Writers Guild of America for the same show. Mr. Zelenka's widow, Cora, said yesterday that he accepted the second award with greater pride since it was from his peers. Now, A.J. Russell had a connection to Jackie Gleason and the Gleason shows throughout his whole career, writing for the Honeymooners in the 1950s, writing that Art Carney meets Peter and the Wolf, as well as Art Carney meets the Sorcerer's Apprentice in the late 50s, writing for the Jackie Gleason show in 1968, and then finishing his career, not counting that gig for General Hospital, with a series entitled Gleason, He's the Greatest, except that Jackie Gleason died during pre-production. Now, Jack Seabrook says that A.J. Russell may have focused on comedy writing in the 1950s, but the hidden thing is no comedy. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to disagree. It may not be a standard comedy, but it is very much a shaggy dog comedy. Now, there doesn't seem to be an actual story published anywhere. But as we've learned in previous episodes, like Portrait of Jocelyn, the phrase based on a story by, can sometimes be the Alfred Hitchcock Presents way of saying based on a teleplay by. In this case, A.J. Russell has a previous teleplay credit with a familiar-sounding name for the television series The Clock. According to David Bassler at IMDb, The Clock was a suspense anthology series based on an ABC radio series which ran from 1946 to 1948. The half-hour series mostly consisted of original dramas concerning murder, mayhem, or insanity. The title of the series was derived from a clock which was a major plot element in each story. The show's musical theme was The Sands of Time. And each show began with the quotation, Sunrise and Sunset, Promise and Fulfillment, Birth and Death, The Whole Drama of Life is Written in the Sands of Time. A.J. Russell wrote five episodes of The Clock, one of which was The Hidden Thing. It starred Robert Sterling, and a synopsis from ctva.biz says, A man's memory plays tricks on the conflicting evidence he knows about, which sounds close enough to assume that this is the same story. I have not been able to find this version of The Hidden Thing anywhere. And I'm afraid that ctva.biz's comment that the series was of mostly live original dramas is the problem. My guess is it was never filmed, never recorded, and it no longer exists. A.J. Russell does have one more credit on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next and last is Kill With Kindness, episode four of season two, where he is the author of both the story and the teleplay. And A.J. Russell died in 1999 at the age of 84. Our next film in the early days of Hitchcock is Tell Your Children. Not to be confused with the subtitle For Reefer Madness. The only plot description I can find says, A lady stops her daughter from eloping with a farmer, takes away her baby, and makes her marry a lord. Patrick McGilligan in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, says that Hitch did the intertitles and was art director. But Ellen Kurzankopf and Charles Barr in Hitchcock, Lost and Found, The Forgotten Films, say that he did the intertitles and was a studio assistant. They also say it was made by the same writer-director team, 
Margaret Turnbull and Donald Crisp, who had been working together at Famous Players Lasky. After his four films at Islington, Crisp directed no more films, but he continued his acting career into the 1960s. Reviews were mainly negative. Kino Weekly, their September 21, 1922 issue, reported, This is still another attempt to put on the screen the dangers of allowing children to remain ignorant of the basic facts of sex. It is difficult, if such a theme is to be treated so as to avoid all offense, to make it either interesting or convincing, and in this case it has succeeded in being neither. The story is improbable and mechanical, and long before the end becomes wearisome. It is not helped by the way the continuity goes all to pieces on several occasions. Only a moderate attraction for most halls. Tell Your Children, like the clock version of The Hidden Thing, no longer exists. So, what do we make of this episode? Yes, it's frustrating, but it's designed to be frustrating. We have been trained to expect certain things from a program like this. If someone causes a death, we assume that we will learn who the killer is. If a character claims to have a son killed in the same way, we assume that will tie into the story. If that same character is a mystery and it is pointed out that he is a mystery, we expect a solution to that mystery that will answer some of the questions we have with the story. The acting, writing, and directing all lead us that way. Dana's questions about Hurley are answered. Dana's mother's determination that there is something wrong with Hurley proves to be correct. But none of this is in the way we expect. All along, we are baited, hooked, and thrown back again. Dana's moment when he seems about to remember the color of the license plate. Laura saying she's a punishment, not a reward. The camera shots that refuse to introduce us to Hurley all serve to confound us. In the end, we're left as angered as Alice with her frustrating encounters in Wonderland. Who cares for you, said Alice. You are nothing but a pack of cards. So what about our pack of cards? Are they all filled with jokers? Does the ending nullify the rest of it? We have a story of a man who experiences a tragedy for which he is partially responsible and must own up to that responsibility before he can find any justice. He comes to accept that responsibility by immersing himself in a memory he is trying to evade, bringing the hidden thing of the title into the light. Do we need any more than that? As Hurley says, Does it matter what my reasons are? If I can do this for you, what difference does it make? Well, it shouldn't make any difference. But it does. Sort of. Because no one likes to be the butt of a joke. So, in spite of the process of Total Recall actually working, the process of the show, and our enjoyment and appreciation of it, is undermined all along the way. Now here's Hitch, still pulling things out of his trunk. In fact, he has a whole pile of things on the table now, including a doll, a toy sailboat, and a trumpet. As we watch, he pulls out a sword. I still can't remember what I'm looking for. If I had only partial recall, it would help. He reaches into the trunk again and pulls out a slip of paper. Here it is, at the very bottom of the trunk. I remember now. It's a note I wrote myself. Remember to clean out trunk. I must remember to do that sometime. And incidentally, here's something for you to remember while I'm away for the next 60 seconds. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, The Twilight Zone, Season 1 and Season 2, Kiss Me Deadly, Total Recall, When Worlds Collide, 
and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the original soundtrack, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Norm MacDonald on Conan O'Brien, A Real Shaggy Dog Story, and the General Hospital episode from 1975 are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. And now, in case you're still smarting from this episode, here's another Norm MacDonald story to lighten the mood and make the shaggy dog just a little less shaggy. Back, everybody, here with Norm MacDonald. And, uh, you know, I find out more and more about you every time you uh, yeah. come on the program. You know, I always study up on a file and I learn more about you. And uh-huh. uh, I was really surprised to learn I didn't know this. I didn't know this, but you were a bartender. Yeah, I, I did a lot of jobs before I got into comedy, you know, and for a while I was uh, slinging the uh, hash. No, no. Just... <laughs> no. You idiot. <laughs> that was when I was a fry cook. I was, I was a bartender. I was slinging the drinks, you know? Sure, right. And, uh, oh, man, that was fun. I'll tell you what was fun about being a bartender. Uh-huh. Always a story, you know? Really? Always something funny happening uh-huh. down at the bar. <laughs> Oh, that's and, uh, perfect for a talk show, then. <laughs> yeah, this is a good. This is a good example. I was uh, one time I was working in there. Uh-huh. Drunk guy comes in, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you're not supposed to serve the drunk guys. You know, that's one of the things you learn. So uh, <laughs> okay, and also you learn how to make the drinks. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> so the drunk guy comes in, you know, real drunk, you know, three sheets to the wind, you know. Uh-huh. So this character sits down, you know, and I says to him, I says. I says, what do you want? I can't serve you, you know. He goes, I don't want a, a drink, he says, you know. He says, I want to shoot a, a dart at your dartboard, you know. <laughs> so I go to the guy, I say, you can't shoot a dart at my dartboard. He goes, you're, I go, you're, uh, you're, not in this, uh, you're drunk, you know. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to let you, that'd be dangerous. That's a sharp thing, a dart, you know. So the guy goes, no, let me shoot one shot at the dartboard. So I go, all right, one shot, that's it. So the guy shoots the dart, bullseye. i never seen anything like it, you know, uh-huh. even in a state, bullseye. So the guy says to me, he says, what do I win? You know? Uh-huh. So I, I don't know what he wins. I'm confused, you know? So I start looking around, uh-huh. try to find something before him. And I see in a, in a, right in the bottom of the bar area, there's a, uh, there's a shoe box with a turtle in it. From where? What, what is that doing there? What? <laughs> I was gonna give it. I was gonna give it. To, I was gonna give it as a gift to uh, my nephew. He, okay, all he right. He wanted a, a turtle, and I said I'll give him a turtle. <laughs> That'll be a good gift. Okay. But then later I thought that's a dumb gift to turtle. Nobody likes a turtle, uh-huh. you know. The kid will probably just put him on his back until he dies. Kids are cruel, you know. So I said, why not just give it to this drunk? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I said, here's your prize. Here it is. And so the guy takes it in the shoebox, you know, and he goes, thanks, and he walks out with it. Uh-huh. So I figured that's the last I'll ever see of that guy. Sure. Two weeks later, the guy shows up again. Mm-hmm. Drunk again. <laughs> so now I go, oh, my mm-hmm. God, that's that guy from two weeks ago, you mm-hmm. know? So he walks up to the bar. I go, I can't serve you, buddy. I can't do that. He goes, I don't want, he says, I want to shoot a, a dart at your dartboard. Uh-huh. I go, ah, oh, no, man, I let you do that before. He goes, but I got a bullseye. I say, yeah, yeah, but you can't do that again. You know, that was luck. He goes, let me try. So he takes it, shoots it, bullseye again. Oh, man. So he goes, what do I win? You know? 
So I'm confused. I don't know, you know. I look around. I go, I don't know. I go, I go what, what did you win last time? He goes, oh, last time. He goes, last time I won a, uh, I won a, a roast beef on a hard roll. <laughs> It was the turtle. We know it was the turtle. It was the turtle. Next time, episode 35, The Legacy, starring Leora Dana and Jacques Bergerac. Our story tonight taught us that once you have seen something, you never really forget it. There are times when that can be an appalling thought. One further reminder... I shall be back next week with another story. And unless your license number happens to be KTY478, I shall see you then. Good night. (laughs) 